and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, Bent Tree Church, it's good to finally see you uh, face to face. Uh, welcome to church on a wonderful Lord's Day. Amen. It's been so long since I've been here. It's good to be back in the house of the Lord. If I don't know you, I'm Paul Trimble. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, the pastor with the clearly the best beard. You know, I'm just, uh, since the other guys don't have one. Thank you for letting me be gone on vacation uh, with BB and uh, so happy to be back in with you. I joined you online. I was wondering if you had forgotten about me. I just, I started letting my beard grow out. I'm kind of unrecognizable now. And did you guys forget me? Did you guys forget me? Uh, you were in good hands with shepherding elders here and with our wonderful pastoral staff. Pastor Jeff, thank you for preaching for us. Uh, it was wonderful. And as you lead us, thank you. Pastor Hal, uh, preaching, did a great job. Thank you for that. And then the last couple of weeks, a wonderful job to our two pastoral residences here. They preached for us. Chris Rothenberry and Hunter Wiley, they did a wonderful job. Super proud of you guys in Christ Jesus. So thank you for preaching to us. I got to hear that on online, uh, and it was good. Uh, and all you guys joining us online, thank you. If you didn't know, these two men, Chris and Hunter Wiley, are part of our preaching cohort that takes place in the fall and in the spring. These guys and others are training to be pastors. We are so proud of you guys in Christ Jesus for that. That's hard work. Just a little commercial here before we get started. Uh, we are starting our Wednesday night services in a couple of weeks. Watch, because the times of the service are changing from what they have been. There's so much to be a part of with these guys as with other new guys we're going to be adding in. The commercial is this. You can come on Wednesday nights. It'll be at 6 p.m. Uh, the service is going up and then we're going to have uh, a time after where we're, uh, where we're preaching guys how we're preaching, teaching guys how to preach and then giving them an opportunity. So if you, uh, if you guys, if you feel like, Hey, I'd like to learn how to preach, uh, you could definitely come and, and and uh, we'll let you preach on that and, and show you what, how to do that. There's so much going on at Bentry. Make sure that you stay in the loop with our weekly newsletter. Follow us on social media as well. I'm looking forward to all the great things God is going to do in the new year through you. I, I just am. Through the body of Christ. Well, let's get started. Who brought their Bible? Let's see those things. Let's see those things. Hold them up. Come on. Who brought their Bible? Good job. Good job. Now, if you didn't hold a Bible up, uh, you can definitely look on your phone or iPad. In fact, you can pull up that app. It'll show you actually the notes that uh, you can fill in the blanks and all the scripture that we'll have. Uh, you can download those notes. And so today we're going to jump back into our series as we work our way through John. Uh, the series is titled, So That you may believe. It's a series that we've been going through, well, uh, for a long time. <clears throat> I think we're in week 36 or 37, something like that. So we call it that because of the verse at the end of John, where John tells why he wrote the book. He says this, John 20 verse 31, he said, but these things are written, in other words, the book, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the picture that we hear. Here is the Apostle John writes this, the last of the four accounts of Jesus' life, the one true gospel. He says, I write this so that you would believe. He's saying, I was there. And Bent Tree, we have this saying, we go deep to grow deep. Meaning that we go deep into God's word so you know why you believe and what you believe so that you can have life in his name. So let me just check in with you. Who is the name John is referring to that we believe? Jesus. Jesus. There is life in that name and only in that name. Not in Muhammad. Not in any other religion, not in my name, not in your name, only in Jesus' name. Now, what is life? Well, maybe it might be a good idea to define life by saying what it isn't. If you don't have life, what are you? 
dead. Sorry if that was a surprise to you. <laughs> By the way, since I've been gone, um, I like it when you give me feedback. Talk, be loud. Like say amen, that means I agree. Or you can say I agree or go with it. Don't say things like, I don't think I'd have said that. Don't say things like that. <laughs> don't give me any groans. Okay, so when the apostle John says that you may have life, notice he doesn't say can have life. He is saying may or you may have permission to have life now. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm going to show you the life in the Son of God, Jesus, and the story of his life, what Jesus says, what he does. You're going to be permitted to find life in that story. Or you can say, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be permitted to have a life, check this out, like his. Like the story, Jesus' words, uh, who he is, all the, uh, the miracles that he does, the apostle John is telling us, this is the way to find life, right? He says, so who's the apostle John writing this to? Uh, two kinds of people, two kinds of people. First, dead people. Yes, I said dead people. Those who are, as the Apostle Paul describes them, dead in the trespasses and sins. And that would be all of us before we believe in the name of Jesus Christ. That doesn't, uh, those that don't have life. He, he says, you're going to find life in this book. A life like his. A life that is truly life, not mere existence uh, as you wait to die on this conveyor belt of death. Like just waiting out your time. He says, you're going to find life both now, in this life, and for all eternity. The second group of those people that he writes to are those that have found life in Christ Jesus, but want to go deeper now into that life, into a relationship with God. John is saying, you want to find a deeper, more fulfilling life in Christ. You Christians, you study this book. This is all about Jesus. And you'll find that as you grow into a Christ-like maturity is that Jesus is to be found every page. Maybe not explicitly, but definitely implicit in every page. Every inspired word in this book, I mean every word, every jot and tittle the Bible tells us will take you to a new place of loving God and a new depth in your relationship. But you have to study it. To get the richness out of it. That's my prayer for us today. That if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus through his words in John, I'm praying that you might find life today. That's what I'm praying. Spiritual life, eternal life. And if you are believers, my prayer for you is, is what Peter, the apostle's prayer, is in some of his last words on this earth when he writes, he says that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that you are conformed into the image that is exactly the kind of person he wants you to be, to conformed into the image of Christ Jesus so that you can live your life with purpose, with meaning, drawing others closer to Jesus because of how you live your life. Your life should look like Jesus' life. That's what we're looking at today. Well, we've got a lot to cover. And baby, I haven't even started preaching yet. You guys better hold on because I've had a rest and I'm ready to preach. Let's pick it up today in chapter 4 of John. You can turn to that. The last time we were here was right before Thanksgiving. Believe it or not, that went by fast. Are you guys ready for some Bible preaching? Say amen. amen. Let's get at this thing. But first, let's get our hearts right. right. Let's go to God in prayer. Would you bow your head? Let's just get our hearts right. Is there sin that you need to confess? You just need to go to God and confess that now. Get it out. He knows about it. Is there somebody you need to forgive? Forgive. Is your mind full of something from the week or something coming in this week? Set that aside. Just tell Jesus, I'm going to set this aside. Father God in heaven, thank you for revealing yourself most clearly in the living word of Jesus. And now in the written word, the Bible that we hold in our laps. Father God, our prayer is that you would take us to where you want us to go today. God, for those hearing my voice that don't know you, I pray that you save them.
call them to life, to be born of you, Jesus. And God, for the believers here, God, take us deeper into faith. Make us look like Jesus. God, we want to know more about you, but not just for knowledge's sake. But that knowledge would grow our relationship with you to a deeper level through your son, Jesus. That it would be deeper and richer and that it would be looking more like Jesus in how we live. Holy Spirit, I know that you're here. I know that you're in the heart of everyone that listens today. Would you reveal the words today in a new and revealing way? Help me to disappear. Help my opinions to disappear. And may only your word remain. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin with our passage for today in John 4 as we begin to work our way through this verse by verse. If you're able, would you stand with me in reverence to the word of God being read? Uh, There's nothing magical. You're just standing in reverence. As And worship as I read aloud the word of God. Verses 1 through 14. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were. He left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where are you going to get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But everyone, but whoever drinks from this water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Mm. Praise God for his word. Amen. You may be seated. Let his word have its full effect on us right now. This story is powerful. And we're going to unpack it for the next few weeks. We're going to be hanging out on this story for a while. It's long. We didn't get through all of it by any means yet. Because there's just so much here. I don't want to go too fast. And no one's ever accused me of doing that. I want to encourage you, though, to dig in in your personal life. Read on this. Study it. See what God tells you. Here's what we need to remember. Every part of the gospel of John is there for a specific purpose. And this chapter and chapter four is no uh, exemption to that. Let's remember how we got here to chapter four. Remember back, way back in chapter two, I think it was like summertime when we were there, just a couple of weeks before Jesus comes to this well in time frame, before he meets Nicodemus, Jesus has been in Jerusalem during the Passover celebration. You remember that? He had cleared out the temple of all the animals and the money changers. He had turned their tables over. And then he had done all kinds of miracles and miraculous signs. He had begun to baptize people. And it said that many believed in his name because of that. But then check out verse 24 of chapter 2 of John. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows what is in each person. He knows their hearts. He knows your heart. There's nothing hidden from Jesus, from our past, our thoughts, who we are. Jesus sees it all. So it kind of make you uncomfortable a little bit. It does me. 
That's important because in order uh, of what we're studying here today, the Apostle John does something pretty amazing to show us something about Jesus in the order of what we're reading. Now, we spent most of the fall mining the richness of chapter 3 of John as we looked at Nicodemus and his interactions with Jesus. If you'll remember that night, this Pharisee, this leading teacher of the Jewish people had walked away from that conversation with Jesus lost. Still unbelieving, and yet Jesus had shaken him to his very core of his religious beliefs. And yet Jesus at the same time had answered the question, how can I enter the kingdom of God? That was the burning question on Nicodemus' heart. How can I get to heaven? Jesus told him, he said, you must be born again. Literally, if you remember the translation, he says you must be born from above. You must be spiritually born from heaven. That's not the answer that old Nicodemus is looking for. He wants something to do to be worthy of salvation. You see this? And what did it mean to be born again? To believe Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. To be born again means to be regenerated spiritually, to be brought to life spiritually. But then in chapter 4, we have this contrast with Nicodemus that we simply know as the woman at the well. Now later in the series, I'm going to tell you, she actually does have a name in history. But I'm not going to tell you until we get there. Now don't miss how different these two people were. Nicodemus and this woman at the well. John wants us to see this. And so to illustrate this point about who Jesus is, he puts these stories in order like this. Think about the difference between old Nick and this woman. Nicodemus was a Jewish man. He comes from a wealthy, powerful family. They've got connections. He is well-educated, well-respected by many. He had made a name for himself, not just a family name. He was famous in his own right. He had servants. He traveled with an entourage of people. He was a leader of the nation, a powerful politician, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. Now, part of the long line of Jewish leaders, this guy could trace his lineage all the way back, check this out, to Abraham. He was very moral. He kept all the Jewish laws in the world's eyes, and he was a picture of success in every area of life. And yet, Nicodemus had come to Jesus under the cover of darkness. Do you remember that? Alone, at night. He's there to protect his reputation while he seeks something, because he is missing something. Deep down inside, within himself, he didn't know what to do about what he was missing. The woman at the well, on the other hand, she was poor, probably illiterate. She clearly doesn't have any servants. I mean, she's getting water. I mean, she's alone. She's carrying a jar or a bucket of some kind to get water from the well, maybe a rope. We know from history back then and still today, the water's over 100 feet deep. Before you get to the water, it's deep. She's coming in the middle of the day for a reason, isn't she? She's coming Because she's shamed. Everyone has to get water in this day. But they would come to get water the night before or even the early, early morning when it was cool. But not this woman. She doesn't want to see anybody. She comes in the heat of the day so she can get water in peace and quiet. She doesn't have a name that we know of. Unlike Nicodemus, she is invisible to most people. And she likes it that way. In the world's eyes, she is a failure. In the world's eyes, she has no value. She has no status, no position uh, in society. She clearly had made a reputation for herself of immorality. We'll see that much more next week. And it doesn't appear that she had any children. Or if she had, they had been taken away from her. Like sold into slavery or taken away because she was a bad mom. She's powerless at this point. What the world would call... A throwaway person. And on top of that, she was a Samaritan woman. Now, I need to take a few moments here. Let's look at the story through the cultural lenses of that day. Cool? To the Hebrew people, the Samaritans were not really Jewish at all. 
They were the enemy. The two races of people at that time in our story lived near each other, but in separate areas. And they didn't venture into each other's area. Samaritans and Jews did not associate with each other in any way, if it could be avoided. And yet, under Roman rule, they had been jammed back into one country under one rule together. The Romans didn't care. They go, get along. We don't care. The Jews considered Samaritans imposters, taking land that should be owned by Jews, occupying that land that God had clearly given to Israel back in the time of Moses and Joshua, more than a thousand years before. To understand why the average Jew hated Samaritan so much, and really vice versa, we need to see the background just a little bit more. You remember all the way back to King Solomon, King David and then King Solomon, the sin single kingdom of Israel. You remember that? But then the kingdom was split into two with uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Check this map out. The whole thing, kind of the purple part and the green, that was all Israel. But then Rehoboam's time, 10 tribes broke away, created Israel, the southern kingdom, with two tribes, with Jerusalem, was called Judah. You see that? It was like they were twin countries. Both were Jews, both God's people, But then this green area, the northern area called Israel, went off the rails with their sin. They went first. And 2 Kings chapter 17 tells us that God, after warning them time and time again for uh, many years, then allowed Israel to be invaded and defeated by the Assyrian army from the north. This is how God's judgment against the northern kingdom went down. When the Assyrian king came and conquered all the green space here in A.D. 722, look what happened. He hauled everyone off into captivity. But then he pulled people from other areas that he had defeated and he brought them over. Does that make sense? They were there to work the farms, work the land. By the way, for you Bible geeks like me, 136 years later, God would allow Babylon, still in this area, it's called Assyria at first, but then Babylon, they would come over and defeat the southern kingdom, Judah. Same story would happen. There were very few Jews in northern kingdom, and the few that were left intermarried with these foreign peoples that were brought in by the Assyrians from over here. Making sense? The descendants of these people became known as the Samaritans. Their capital city was called Samaria. The Samaritans, they even adopted this kind of Jewish mentality, but there was very little Jewish DNA in them at all. The Jews considered them a cult because what really upset the Jewish community is the Samaritans had built their own temple in the north, started a sacrificial system similar to Jerusalem, the real temple in the south. The Samaritans had taken the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, you have. They had rewritten them just a bit to make it fit more like what they wanted. And the Samaritans didn't follow any of the prophets, any of the books like, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah. Samaritans thought of themselves as the rightful Jews But the Jews certainly didn't think that at all. Now, see, you see why there's such a hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans? I mean, this is a blood feud. These foreign peoples were brought into the northern Israel area to work the fields, and they had taken over the houses and the farms and the lives of the Jews that had been taken off. Now, with that historical lens in place, let's begin to look at verse 1 through 3. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. Here's a question for you. It appears Jesus is running from the Pharisees. Is that true? No. This is a strategic withdrawal. It's a plan by Jesus to to do what he's 
supposed to do? He gets the word about the Pharisees and he begins to move his operations back to Galilee in the north, north of Samaria. He cuts right through the middle of Samaria. He starts in Jerusalem. He's baptizing around here and he comes up and goes straight north, right through Samaria. By the way, every time you see Jesus come from the north up here in Galilee and go down to Jerusalem, it's like he's poking a bear. <laughs> it's like he makes the religious guys all upset every single time. He's like, poke, and then he goes back up north. All the religious dudes get upset, but they don't really have as much power in the north, so they don't follow him. Certainly not into Samaria. The Pharisees were clearly trying to keep the peace with the Romans politically. And at the same time, they're trying to protect their little power egg, right? Their little, uh, their little financial gravy train. They're the chief religious leaders, the political leaders. They don't want Jesus putting that in jeopardy. They had been worried about John the Baptist. And now that Jesus and his disciples are starting to baptize more people, more people are following Jesus. Now they've got their eye on Jesus. You with me? But again, is Jesus running from the Pharisees? Is he afraid? No. He's, he's got a plan. Remember, Jesus is both truly God and truly man. His eyes are on the mission of what he's come to earth for. And what is the mission? To seek and save the lost. Jesus knows that these guys are out to get him and that one day they would achieve their goal of crucifying him. He knows that. But Jesus is like, not yet. Sorry, guys. I'm going to head back to Galilee. I know I upset you. I poked the bear. I'm going north. But the date and the time of his crucifixion have been set. We didn't know that. The people didn't know that. But Jesus knew it. And Jesus is going, there's a lot I've got to get done before I'm crucified. Here's what I want, I want us to know from the Gospels. Write this down. Write this down. This is powerful. In the Gospels, all four of them, we see Jesus act with intentionality to move in the purpose to which God has called him. In the Gospels, we see Jesus act with intentionality to move in the purpose to which God has called him. Now, the word intentionality means more than the word intention. It, it literally, the definition of intentionality means a quality of mental state, thoughts, beliefs, desires, hopes that consist in being directed towards some object or state of affairs or purpose. It's like your soul's purpose. You're acting with intentionality. So what is his purpose? To seek and save the... That's what he's here on earth for. And how is he going to do that? Well, to offer himself as this perfect sacrifice for sins of all those who would believe. But don't miss that Jesus is going to take every opportunity of talking to everyone he's supposed to talk to and visit with to talk and make this long journey to the cross. He's going to check all the boxes that he's supposed to. And we'll read through John. As we read through John, Jesus is following his father's command. Listen to me. Not a step is lost. Nothing's wasted. God is working out every footstep Jesus is making and his disciples take. Every detail to get Jesus to the point of the cross and redemption. The apostle Peter, as he preached to this giant crowd on Pentecost, after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Do you remember that? Holy Spirit had come. They said, why is everyone speaking in this strange language? He preaches. He said this about Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Apostle Peter. He said this, uh, Acts 2, verse 23. Though he, Jesus, was delivered up according to God's, look, determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. God has this plan of what he has called his providence. Jesus has come to accomplish God's providence, his plan. And although his disciples don't see any of this stuff, Jesus does. 
Now check this out. There is nothing wasted in Jesus' travels and conversations. It kind of blows our mind, I know. But listen, every place they stop for the night, every conversation, every action he takes, man, I, I feel like, I feel like uh, staying with the police. Every move you make, every breath you, any Sting fans out there? Yeah, I love that song. Look at this. Every place they stop for the night, every conversation Jesus has, he knows has a purpose. And that God is using him for that purpose. All right, now, a little side note here. This is also us as well. This is a different teaching, a different message, but I got to go here. Believers, listen to me. You don't believe me, but there are no accidents. There's no such thing as chance. God is not like trying to figure out how to somehow use all this craziness in the world to, to get you in the right situation. And, and when he gets right into, you get right into the crosshairs, he pulls the trigger. That's not how God works. He's in control. If you have this view of God, like he's kind of out of control and every once in a while, he kind of bumps the pool table to make the balls roll the right way. You have a low view of God. Now, a little side note. You've got to understand this is your life as well. God is using this life. God is taking you, me, us on a journey. He doesn't waste our footsteps. He takes us through the ups and downs in life. And listen, when you're in the middle of the storm, it doesn't feel like that. You don't want to hear this message. If you're in the middle of a storm, I get it. But when you look back, when you're walking with Jesus, you go, oh, okay. The good times, the hard times, he's using all of it, this journey to shape us, to mold us. But here's the thing. If we aren't pursuing God, if we are not leaning into Jesus and seeking his purpose for our lives, listen to me, we can miss out on huge opportunities that God has given us right there in the middle. There's no accidental conversations. We can miss out on what he wants us to build as his kingdom. And really, this is where, uh, that is where we are in Loveland, in northern Colorado, to build his kingdom. Every conversation, there's no accidental conversations. That's what we're here, to bring him glory, to build his kingdom. But how do we sometimes miss out on that stuff? The blessing that he has. By seeking our own desires. And not God's plans for our lives. Jesus doesn't miss anything. Not a single opportunity. Jesus is seeking to do the will of his father here. So with that in mind, Jesus is going north to Galilee. He's gotten right through Samaria. He's got an appointment. Galilee is in the north of Israel, Jerusalem. And where Jesus has been baptizing is in the south and a little bit east toward the Jordan River. Galilee is Jesus' home base throughout his ministry. Just He heads south to Jerusalem sometimes, remember, to boop, poke the bear. So he's going to go back there to Galilee from Jerusalem, and he takes the shortest route. That's what we saw. Now, that's not what most Jews would have done at the time. In fact, very few would have gone through there. It was just not safe. Because of the hatred that we just looked at a few moments ago, most Jews would have gone as much as 150 miles around instead of that 30-mile journey. They would have gone way out of their way to bypass, but not Jesus. Jesus knows he has a conversation with a woman at a well no one cares about. He's got an appointment with this lady, and he's going to keep that appointment. Now watch this tiny little verse. I love this verse. John 4, 4. He had to travel through Samaria. He had to go. Wait, no one went through there who wasn't a Samaritan, but it said he had to go. Not because it was the shortest route. Not because he was afraid of the Pharisees. He had to go to meet this woman that no one cared about, but Jesus did. This is a divine appointment. And we get this little glimpse at it. And we'll examine this more next week, but realize that all of the life of this woman, the ups and downs, the tragedy she's gone through has led her to this point. God has used it all to bring her to Jesus. 
And we'll see that she is, she's had a rough life. We'll look at that more next week. But God is going to use this pain, the scars, to shape her and mold her into the ministry tool he wants her to be. So Jesus moves with intentionality to find this woman. Look at verse 5 and 6. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Now let's get the physical settings in our minds here. Jesus and his disciples had come 30 miles from Jerusalem through kind of think of like our foothills. It's hilly like that. It's dry. It's arid. It's up and down. It's a path. It's not a road. He is more than tired. It says he's worn out. He sits down to rest. Isn't that interesting? Now, wait, isn't he the all-powerful God? Why is he resting? Because he's truly human too. He's worn out just like you and I would be spending the whole day at the county fair. He is worn out. If you hiked Long's Peak, he's hiking that kind of thing. He's thirsty. It's noon. It's hot. We see in just a minute, his disciples have gone into town. He doesn't have anything to get water with. Oh, that's intentional. You always brought your rope and your bucket to get water out of a well. Now picture the landscape here. This area, I said it's a dry area, similar in some respects how we live. Samaria is a high plains desert. It's arid. The well they have come to, very, very famous in Jerusalem and throughout history. It's still there today. It was different from regular wells that just you dug until you hit groundwater. It's kind of muddy water. This one was much, much, much deeper. More than 100 feet deep before you hit the water. And that well is connected to what we call an aquifer. Now, an aquifer... Simply a fancy name for underground river. It's flowing. The water was fresh. It's cold still today. And Jesus is thirsty. So watch how this works. Now we know that because we've read the text already, we know that Jesus knows who this woman is, but she does not know him, does she? But remember, Jesus is following his father's will. This meeting that is about to take place, no accident, Even the circumstance isn't an accident. God has set up this thing. Jesus is tired. He's thirsty. No accident. He's being alone with this woman. No accident. You see a, do you see a, a a plan here? Jesus is about to set up this conversation that would change not only this woman's life drastically, but the lives of everyone in a village and then thousands throughout history. This meeting, intentional. But let's think about the woman's point of view here. She's just hiked up to get water. It's the middle of the day. We know from archaeology, history, that there were other wells closer to town that she could have gone to. Much closer to town. But she chooses this one. It's the deeper, fresher water in the middle of the day. No one's going to be there. She wants to be alone. Scripture doesn't tell us but it's likely that she passed the other disciples as they head into town and she was coming up to the well. She can tell on, these, on this trail, she could probably tell these are Jewish men by their accents. Before she even sees them, she hears all these men's voices. I just picture this narrow trail, some bushes there. Maybe she gets off the trail, hides herself behind a bush for just a moment. She's quiet as a mouse. Out of sight until they all pass. And once they're gone, she continues up the trail. She wants to be alone. She walks up to the well. She rounds the bend. She must have been frustrated to see another Jewish man sitting at her well when she's supposed to be alone. Some sweaty guy probably stinks to high heaven. Jesus is sitting there with a big smile on his face. He's waiting for. You can almost hear an audible, "Ah," can't you? You got the picture? Let's look at verse seven. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. Because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Jesus doesn't have a bucket to drink. 
with. It doesn't have a row. Now, Jesus has just broken some huge social rules, some barriers, and he's broken a few of them, let's be honest. Think about this. Men in that society didn't talk to women even uh, if they were the same race if they were not their family. You just didn't talk to someone else, if, a woman, if you were not uh, there, you know, if it wasn't your mother or sister or your wife or your daughter. Certainly not in public. Jesus was a rabbi, a religious teacher, and they certainly never talked to women who they were not related to. And on top of that, he was a Jew. Jesus, a Samaritan. But Jesus was on a mission. He had come here. He had set this up to talk to her. So this woman answers Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Oh, she's going to educate him. She's going to set him right. Notice she doesn't say yes or no to his request. I think that's interesting. He never gets his drink. She calls him out for breaking all these social norms of the day. His request is crazy to her. You can almost hear her little high voice say, you're not even supposed to talk to me. That's my best female voice right there. (laughs) But remember, Jesus knows her. He more than just knows about her. He created her. He knows her complete story, every action, every thought. He knows every thought she's forgotten. So, verse 10, Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Now, who's the gift? He is. What's the gift? He is. Now, this woman has heard all the pickup lines from every man she's ever met. She's just assuming this man wants what every other man in her life has always wanted. She's had been, she has been ready with some pithy comment, but Jesus isn't like other men, is he? He's not talking like other men. He throws her a curveball. She doesn't know what to think. She's off balance. Is he really talking about water? She thinks to herself, does he know that we actually call this well the living water well? And they did. Because it was so cold and refreshing. Didn't taste like mud. But what is this man getting at, she thinks. He hasn't moved. He doesn't seem to be threatening. Well, at any rate, she is used to getting the last word in every argument with every other man she's been with. The water in this well is over 100 feet deep, so she calls his bluff. (laughs) Verse 11, she says, sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? This will get him. She sized him up. This is just another man who's trying to get me in bed. Then she adds a little jab about the hatred between Jews and Samaritans in claiming to be, check this out, the rightful heir to Jacob and the the grandson of Abraham. She says in chapter 4, verse 12, she says, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, our father Jacob. Are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Oh, she knows this this will tick off a Jewish man. But he's not getting mad. Maybe he'll leave her alone after this insult, though. But it doesn't work. Not only is he not leaving her alone, he goes right at telling her about the gospel truth. That he's here to save people. Now watch in verse 13. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Now don't miss this. Jesus is referring to himself He is the living water. He's the gift. Look at the words he is using here. He's not describing a well anymore, is he? 
He's not even talking about the aquifer that you have to go deep, deep in the ground to get to. No, no, no. Jesus is describing a fountain, not a well, that comes to the surface, a spring that gushes forth, that overflows to all around. He's not describing ordinary water, is he? No, 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 no. He's talking about spiritual life, isn't he? She doesn't know about this kind of life. He's talking about the same thing he talked about with Nicodemus. There he had used the term being born again or born from above, born from heaven. But now he's using this analogy of of water as life. A new kind of water, a different kind of water that can not only give life to the person who drinks it, but also to the others around them with whom they share it with. By the way, this is why we push D3 so hard. Disciplers, discipling disciples because when you get real living water given to you by Jesus himself you've got to give it to others you want them to experience the living water and see what it's done for you and Jesus is talking about a kind of water that cannot be found by us it has to be given to us from him and that he is the only one who gives gives it But we can tell people where to find it, can't we? D3 means us giving the water we have to each other. Doing this life together. And listen, it's ugly. Our lives are rough. There's ups and downs. Don't miss this. Jesus is offering salvation to her. Now I'm going to leave you hanging right here. That's cruel, I know. The next part is huge. And I'm not going to tell you anything about it yet. It gets really, really interesting and really tense. But you have to come next week. And you have to bring a friend. I want so badly to keep going, but not yet. Jesus is offering to save her, to give her spiritual life in him. You can go read on your own. Actually, I would love that. You'd read ahead, study this, dig in. But here's what I want you to understand. The beauty of saving faith in Christ Jesus is this living water Jesus offers is not that all people will be saved, but all people may be saved. Look at this. In other words, the Bible is clear that no one will ever be barred to coming from Christ because of their past, their gender, their intellect, their education, their race. They're not barred from nationality, their skin color, how much money they have or don't have. Their social rank. That stuff just doesn't matter to Jesus. He's not impressed with you. The beautiful thing about the gospel is the grace offered is free. The living water is free. You don't have to earn it. And in fact, you can't earn it because if you could earn it, it wouldn't be grace. We opened our time today by thinking back to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. You remember? We contrasted old Nick and this woman. What's beautiful here is that Jesus is offering the gospel to a woman who will, we'll just say, is pretty messed up. In the world's eyes, she has gone way too far to be fixed. She is a throwaway person in the world's eyes. If she lives or dies, it doesn't matter. She has no value. But check this out. She's not a throwaway person to Jesus. He came for her. He cut through the mountains and he came for her to offer her life. She hasn't done anything right in years from what we can tell. And yet Jesus comes for her. But old Nicodemus, he had done everything right in the world's eyes. And in the eyes of all the religious people, he was at the literal pinnacle of success. And yet both this woman and this man Nicodemus, they're both lost in their sins. They can't save themselves. He he couldn't get to be holy enough to get to heaven. And she couldn't sin too much to be out of the reach of a loving God. Where are you on this continuum, by the way? Are you more like Nicodemus, like you're a pretty good person? Maybe you're like him. You've been in church all your life. You know the Bible. And God's got to let you into heaven because you're so good, right? And yet deep down inside, you got this gnawing at your soul. The question nags at you. Is it enough? The answer is no, my friend. 
You're guilty. Not unless you've been born again. It's not enough. Or are you more like this woman? You've sinned so much, too much. Maybe you know uh, you've done too much to ever be saved for anybody to love you. You're damaged goods. She knows she's not a good person. She knows she's not a good person. She knows she is too far gone to ever be saved of little or even no value in the world's eyes. She knows that. She's just getting through life, waiting on death. Isn't it interesting that they both need new life that only Jesus can give? Notice that Nicodemus comes to Jesus to find eternal life, leaves without it. And notice that this woman at the well Jesus meet isn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus comes to find her. And although we haven't gotten to that part of the story yet, Jesus does save her. She believes he is the Christ. She is given faith to believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is offering living water. Water that will change your life. He's offering it to you. That will change your life in him. Water that will save you from your sins and give you the righteousness of Jesus. So that when God looks at you, it looks to God that you are righteous. As righteous as Jesus. As you hear that message and the offer from Jesus, are you more like Nicodemus? Or are you more like the woman at the well? You think you're in pretty good shape with your relationship with God? Maybe you don't even need God in your mind. Are you more like the woman? You've gone too far. You could never be saved. You see, the difference between the two is that Nicodemus was not ready, check this out, to let go of his own attempt to save himself. But the woman, she knew she couldn't save herself. She gives up. They both need to be born again. They both need Jesus. But she sees it. Are you ready to surrender your life to him? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God that has come to seek and save you, the lost one? Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we come to you humbly. We seek your truth in our lives. Your words in John have cut through to our heart. God, for those in the house today, those online hearing my voice that don't know you as as their Lord and Savior, would you just give them life in your Son? Give them faith. Help them to be born from above. Call them to yourself. If you're not a Christian, or you don't know if you're a Christian or not, can you just look up here? You Christians, you just keep praying. Will you surrender your life to Jesus if you're not a Christian? Will you be saved today? I'm asking you. Will you give up trying to save yourself like Nicodemus? Will you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe him to be your Savior, your King? Will you give him control of your life? If so, simply talk to God. We call it prayer. Don't get freaked out about it. But talk to God. You've probably prayed before, but even if you haven't, just talk to God. Say something like this. Save me, God, please. Save me. Say, I believe Jesus is your son who died on the cross. I believe you raised him to life. I believe he died on the cross to pay for my sin, taking the punishment that I owed. You see what I'm saying there? What you're praying? God, I believe you raised Jesus from the dead and that he's returning to take his people home. That's what we're all waiting for. Or when we die and he takes us home. Pray this. God, I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. And if that's true, how are you going to live? Say, I repent of my sins. I turn from them. And listen, I, I get it. You still want to do those sins. Me too. I've been walking with Christ for 40 plus years. So pray this prayer. I pray this prayer, a version of this almost every day. God, I'm pretty screwed up in my thinking, my desires. I don't really know what to do in life. 
Would you help me just walk in this new life in Christ Jesus? Just pray that. Listen, it's, if it's true you've given your life, if you, it's true you believe, then you're saved. It's time to demonstrate your faith and demonstrate it to the world, to God, to yourself. It's time to demonstrate it through water baptism. Believer baptism. You see, in just a couple of weeks here, February 13th, we'll have a a tank here of water. And there's nothing special in the water. The water doesn't save you. It's simply a way for you to demonstrate to the world, to God, to yourself, to say, I stand with the risen Savior. He's my king. And you just declare it publicly. The picture is the old you, the dead you, and I bury you under the water. I lean you back and I shove you down under the water. The dead you. And then I raise up a new you who walks in the newness of Christ. Becoming to look like Jesus. Listen to me. If you are a believer and you've never been baptized, let me just ask you, why? Water doesn't save you. Jesus' blood saves you. Grace of God saves you. But it's time for you to stand up for Jesus. We're coming to a time of communion. Water baptism is like communion in that it is what we call the ordinary means of grace. In other words, how God pours out His grace on us day in, day out through the preaching of His Word, through prayer. Coming to church, worshiping together, God pours out His grace, His goodness on us. Water baptism is another way. But what we're going to do now is take communion together. Pull up that little cup. You don't have to be a member of Bent Tree to, to take this, but you need to be a Christian. It's not for kids that are not made a confession of faith. Go ahead and pull that little piece of bread out and carefully open that little cup of juice underneath the bread. It's a separate little deal. On the night Jesus was betrayed, the night before the next morning where he would be tried and then crucified and die on a cross, He said, I want to show you something. He says, I'm going to show you this. And I want you to do this to remind yourself of this. And it's a way for God's grace to be poured out to you. Now, they had just celebrated this great big um, feast. And the feast was based around remembering what God had done. It was the last of the great plagues that God had poured out on the Egyptian people. Do you remember the story The Israelites had been in captivity in Egypt. And God had sent plague after plague. And Pharaoh would say, I'll let them go. But then he wouldn't. And God says, I'm going to send one last one. And by this one, he'll let them go. He says, I'm going to kill every firstborn in every home. But he told the Jews through Moses, he said, unless you take the blood of a lamb... A baby lamb, you slaughter it and you put the blood on the doorpost of your home. And when the angel of death sees that blood, he'll pass over your house and you'll be protected. You with me? Jesus and his disciples had just celebrated that feast, remembering the blood that that house was saved. And he took some bread and he broke it. Snapped the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. He says, take and eat. Remember my body broken for you. This is the body of Christ. Take and eat it. Then he took the last cup of the Passover feast. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood of Christ. Take and drink it. God, we remember that you have given your son for us. We pray right now, God, that you would use the grace that you're pouring out on us right now as we remember your death, Jesus. 
that you would make us into the Christians you want us to be, the Christ followers. Our prayer, God, is that you would make this church into the church you want to be, to draw people to yourself. And Jesus, we look forward to the time you come home to take us home with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.